And welcome back to the Murdy Creative Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Murdy, and today we're trying something a little bit new. But first, I want to say thank you to everyone who has supported the company so far. If you haven't got a chance, go check us out on the web at murdycreative.co. That's M-U-R-D-Y creative.co. Or you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram by searching at murdycreative.co to see the best of our product shots. Follow us to keep up to date with our daily photos and be the first one to know about new product launches. You can also use the subscribe button at the bottom of our website to be included in all of our new products announcements. Be sure to check out our laser engraving, personalization options, and exclusive colors on the website, or you can get a blank one on Amazon Prime. All right, so I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, and uh, the topic of long-form content has come up a couple of times in some podcasts that I respect and, and listen to and think about a lot, and so I actually wanted to give it a try here and see what could be done as far as the long-form podcast. So uh, this is a little bit different. I think, I don't know how long this one's going to be. I'm just going to kind of keep talking, and I'm going to talk and talk and talk, and it, we may not stick with this format. This format, it'll be interesting to see how it uh, how it plays out, so you know, if you have feedback one way or another, feel free to shoot me some uh, some content because I'm always I'm always interested in hearing what you guys have to say about how we do this and how we do these kinds of things. So I'm going to kind of start, and I think the plan for this long-form podcast, for this specific one, and then maybe a little bit of a later series of this, is to start about talking about who I am, where I come from, my history, where I grew up, what are the factors that I think led to where I am today, and, and all of the different pieces that kind of came into, into vision and into fruition that, that led to the company being born, as it were. And I mean, who knows if this will be interesting, who knows if it'll have anything worth remembering, but I'm going to try it and see how it plays out, and uh, if I don't like it, or if you guys don't like it, eh, maybe I won't do it anymore. So I think if, if we're going to go back to the beginning, um, you know, I think it's important obviously to talk about not only where I came from, but who I grew up with. So I, I am the second of four boys, uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of advantages and disadvantages to growing up where I did with three brothers. Um, I grew up in a, a small ish town. It's not, not tiny, but it was uh, 60,000 people in Janesville, Wisconsin, and Janesville, for most of my childhood, was mainly a manufacturing town. GM, there was a GM plant there that was like the GM plant that manufactured like Suburbans and things like that. And uh, for those of you who have closely watched politics for a long time, it's a it's a it's a specific GM plant that's actually been visited by several presidents, and you know it's been a kind of a a good topic point. But that plant actually formed, I mean, many many ways, the backbone of the of the the place I grew up. A lot of people worked for GM for many years, and my father, who was a doctor. Uh, who's an internist, was very close with a lot of the people that worked on that plant. And we actually had a Suburban that we traveled all across the country in that had been made on the plant in GM. And my dad was always very proud of that fact. And uh, the town, before it had been GM, there was a Parker Pen factory that was there. And Parker Pen was actually headquartered there. And uh, the Parker Jotter, which is what comes with all of our books, were made there. And this was, of course, long before my time. But I think it's important for the history of the country or the the the, the city. There was a lot of, of of history of manufacturing, and so some of the high schools, particularly, had been equipped by a lot of the local businesses with some pretty high tech equipment that allowed them to train high schoolers to become, you know, people who could operate these machines. <clears throat> so when I had, but let we're getting kind of jumping ahead of ourselves. I had originally grown up, and I was. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. So I had been the second of these four boys. And I mean, I always loved my older brother, Marcus, who 
I mean, I didn't always love him. I actually was my, my deepest enemy for many years, but then we, we grew to be best friends. And my younger brothers and Daniel and Samuel were, I was pretty close with, um, not as close as Marcus, but Marcus was two years older than me. And Daniel was three years younger than me. And Samuel was seven years younger than me. So there was a little bit of a spread out. So Marcus and I were pretty inseparable, inseparable when we were growing up. And Marcus would build these elaborate cities out of blocks and Legos and everything like that. He was very determined and very organized. And I would then promptly, quote, play with them. And by that, I just destroyed them. And he was always pretty dutiful about rebuilding them. And it's a good thing he did because that's kind of what he does now. He, um, and I talked about that a little bit in the interview. He uh, rebuilds, um, what am I allowed to say? He rebuilds, he, he repairs machinery for one of the largest um, industries in the world, I should say. So, <clears throat> so I hope that was vague enough for you, Marcus. Anyway, we, uh, we got along pretty well after about eighth grade. That was when, really when, um, actually it was really girls that brought us together. I didn't understand them and frankly, neither did he. So that was a good kind of bonding point. And we stopped fighting and started getting along a little bit more at that point. And for all of my middle school, we went to a little Lutheran middle school that was across town. And Janesville is, uh, was originally built as a mill town because of the Rock River, which flows through Janesville. And so the entire city was kind of built around the, the river. And the river has a pretty steep valley that it goes into, and then a pretty steep valley you have to climb out of to get to the other side of the city. And my school was on the opposite side of the valley, so I literally had to ride my bike three miles bo- uphill both ways um, to school every day. And I really actually didn't mind that. I mean, I complained about it a lot as a kid, but I actually enjoyed the the sunshine. And um, we obviously didn't ride bikes during the winter, but we rode bikes pretty much right up until the first snow, and then. Uh, we didn't ride if it was raining. Mom was always pretty good about that, but otherwise we would ride. And I understand as an adult now that three or four rambunctious middle school teenage boys probably needed to go out and ride our bikes for about six miles a day for us to burn off some of that energy. Otherwise, we were impossible to deal with. So riding bikes, though, was a good opportunity for me because as I would ride my bike to school and then on my way home from school, I always imagined I was being chased by some evil force some you know it was sometimes it was i was in star wars and i was running away from you know there was stormtroopers on speeder bikes coming after me or or i was anakin riding my speeder bike to go you know take out all of those poor defenseless uh, creatures whatever they were or sometimes i was you know riding motorcycles in a motocross race or something i mean it, w- it was just a different thing every day and and i think those I mean, it was 15 or 20 minutes, but those 15 or 20 minutes of play, essentially, every day helped foster a very active imagination that I really enjoyed and encouraged through reading a lot of books. And mom read to us a lot when we were kids, and I always enjoyed having mom read to me, and I still enjoy having people read to me to these days via audiobooks. So I thought, you know, so so doing reading while I was doing these play things or afterwards, I, I really developed, I think, a pretty strong imagination. And I had a certain affinity for these characters, as I think everyone does. I think every kid has an affiliation or an affinity for characters that they see in storybooks. And so as I was beginning, you know, in middle school, I started to read a lot. And one of the books, I was a little bit of a tra- challenging child in that I always liked to know why. And I was very into, in, in, I didn't really ever want to just be okay with how things were. I really wanted to learn more. And so one time I had finished a science test 
and uh, my my science teacher, I always like to be the first to finish the test, and so I would have to sit there for a while in silence and wait, and I was not particularly good at that. So some of my teachers figured out that if they gave me a book to read, I would read the book after I finished my test. And so my science teacher had given me a book about cool technologies that had not been fully kind of utilized for one reason or another, and I came across something called a maser, which is a microwave emitter, the same way a laser works, but with microwaves. And it actually formed, that technology forms the foundation of microwaves that you'd find in your kitchen these days. Uh, But for me, I was fascinated by this thing. I thought to myself, perfect. You create, you take a maser, right? You, You vaporize liquid, the steam rises, spins a turbine, creates electricity, the electricity powers the maser. And then there's a little bit left over. And I found the perfect energy source And I went up to my teacher and I said, yep, I figured it out. Solve the world's energy problems. As an eighth grader, you guys are good. Everybody take a break. I got this. And he very promptly, um, and I will say to his credit, he destroyed and dashed my dreams in the most pleasant way a science teacher can, where he explained the concept of friction and how that wasn't going to work. And I was quite disappointed and frustrated. And I spent many years working on perpetual motion and I nearly got it a couple of times. So, you know, there's that. But. I would say that that opportunity that he had provided me became, I think, the beginning of my creative manifestation where I decided, okay, I can imagine something in my brain, some sort of item, and I can start to make it real, and I can create that. And and so very quickly I began to start sketching out ideas for other technologies that I thought would be very simple and easy. One of those technologies that I developed early my freshman year of high school and finished out my, or started my my eighth grade year and finished out in high school was a design for a magnetic spring floor that would generate electricity from the people walking across it. Um, And I was very excited about the design. I went through a couple of iterations of it. I had a couple of versions of it. I was going to make a prototype of it and test it in the high school, but that didn't really go anywhere because I didn't have any funding. And not more than four years after I finished the design, Georgia Tech announced that they had a couple of smart college students who had done the exact same thing and they were making good money off it. And for a long time, I felt very frustrated because I had a couple of ideas like that where I decided to design them. I worked through all the details and then suddenly somebody else beat me to it. So I learned early on that working and it's not it's not enough to just design your ideas. You have to go make them happen. So all of this creative imagination and um, design angst, I think, and, and I think play, which is what I would describe my bike rides home, led to me really wanting to do musicals because I really liked the idea of song and dance. And I'd been in a, a little bit of my high or my middle school musicals, and I was very excited to join the big leagues. And the summer before my freshman year, I had the opportunity of participating in the first ever Janesville School District Summer School Musical, which was West Side Story. And for those of you who don't know about West Side Story, it's a beautiful musical that is a retelling of the Romeo and Juliet story. Now, spoiler alert, it's the retelling of Romeo and Juliet. They all die in the end. Now, the musical itself features a Puerto Rican gang called the Sharks and an American gang called the Jets. And it's this beautiful number where these essentially these high school kids, you know, rumble, they fight and through misfortune and accident, terrible things happen. And it's this incredibly tragic, beautiful play that it's like talks right to the core of your humanity. And it's very difficult. And 
so this, I was very excited to, to audition and all I wanted was a part with a name. And my brother's then girlfriend, one of my friends and my brother also auditioned and she had kind of convinced him, dragged him along to do it. And for those, he got Bernardo and I got Chino. Now, for those of you who don't know, in the musical, Bernardo is the leader of the Sharks. He's the older guy. He's the the very much the organized one. The He's the one that runs the show. And then Chino is his little second, his friend, who he's going to have take over the gang. And he's trying to kind of training up. And Chino is who Bernardo has picked out to marry his sister, Bernardo's sister, Maria. Now, the Jets have a character named Riff, who is the leader of the Jets. And his Riff's old friend, his name is Tony. And Tony and Maria are Romeo and Juliet in the story. So you couldn't have picked a better show. I mean, like the parts for my brother and I were just like so much fun because Marcus gets to play this stern um, strong lead who he kind of is. That's who he is. He's always been kind of 14 going on 45. So he got to play a character where he gets to be the adult in the room. And I get to play the character where I'm his like sidekick best friend who just wants to help make things happen. And it was ready to go. And it was like the perfect part for us. And we did the original Jerome Robbins choreography, which was incredibly difficult. Um, part of West Side Stories, there's a quite a bit of it. That's it's almost ballet is the is the type of dance a little bit for some parts of it but it's like ballet fighting so it's this very very intricate um, dance and so I gotta be part of this wonderful intense show and I mean we were all you know 14 through 18 year old kids playing these parts who were all 14 or 18 year old kids in the show so like it's very it was very real in that way and we took it very seriously like the jar the jets and the sharks at offstage did not talk to each other we had separate dance captains we didn't we didn't interact with each other when we were offstage so there was a very genuine animosity that kind of built up during our our performance and i i think that that led to a performance that was very memorable i think that era kicked off what i would call the golden the golden era of parker high school musicals we went on to do things like Miss Saigon, where I was the engineer, and we did uh, Phantom of the Opera, where I was Raul, and both of those shows were, man, they were tens of thousands of dollars. They were absolutely the best of the best for costumes and lighting, and I'd, e- I'd even say the acting was pretty solid, and the complicated nature of what we were doing was, and the, the very serious subject material and all of those was very formative for me. Um, it was, if you ever get a chance to see any of those shows, they're like, it's like, they're deeply moving. And so I think early on in my, my life, I was introduced to this idea that stories and good stories can, through embodiment, can really profoundly affect people's life. And that by telling a good story in such a way that other people can see it or be part of it. It's like it tells a much richer, there's a much richer aspect to your life. So, I mean, I think for me, I loved good props and I've always loved movies. And so I thought to myself, I really like movie props. And that's, I'll, I'll get into a little more later in the story, but, but those all things all tie into each other. So that was one aspect of, of my high school was my, my deep and abiding love for musical theater, being part of that group, being kind of part of that crowd getting to be part of the ever-evolving world that was musical theater and the challenges that that presented, which were much appreciated. I liked the difficulty of it. 
And that was so that was the first part. At the same time, my brother Marcus was gra- graduated after his four years in high school valedictorian with a perfect 4.0 GPA. And so obviously I was very frustrated by that because I wanted to be the smartest one in the family. And um, Marcus also had built this rapport with his teachers. And I don't really know how he pulled this off exactly. But Marcus could have, oh, what's the right way to say it? Marcus could have burned the school to the ground. And I think the teachers would have just turned to him and said, all right, what's next? Like he like, and he was never naughty. Like he never like did anything wrong. Right. He was the perfect little golden boy, which was very frustrating. But, um, so he built this rapport with the teachers where like he could run class and they would have been perfectly fine with it. Uh, and I think that, that gave me quite a bit of extra leeway, which I didn't mind at all. Uh, because you know, I was, I was always pretty smart. Like I could kind of get away with being smart, uh, but I'd never really had to work very hard. And except for, I should clarify. So in my, my first year in high school as a freshman, I had a teacher for English nine honors who his name was Mrs. Shemrai. Mrs. Shemrai was this old, small lady who was the smartest person I'd really ever met at that point. She still is up in my top five. And she was very, she did not have a lot of tolerance for the normal shenanigans that people like, like that high schoolers want to play. Like she was a very no nonsense woman. She was fun. She had a good sense of humor, but it wasn't like you weren't going to get away with a lot in her class. And she'd been teaching for so long that you also weren't able to surprise her, right? Like she knew the antics of everybody. And that was the class we did Romeo and Juliet in. So by after my freshman year of being in West Side Story, I was then studying Romeo and Juliet and I'd studied it while I was in the show and I just loved it so much. It was really, really a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to do during high school. And so I I had struggled a little bit in her class because she had spelling words and spelling words have never, ever been my strong suit. And I really despise them and I think they're quite useless. And, you know, little did I know later in life, they would be pretty useless. Um, That's a joke. Stay in school, kids. Spelling is important. But anyway, I so I I was in her class and, and she pulled me aside during a parent teacher conference, actually. Um, and she said, Colin, you know, you're, you're really quite bright, but I'm not going to just let you skate by on that. You're gonna have to work hard. And I didn't take her very seriously. And so I got an A minus in that class. And so in my first semester of high school, I ruined my ability to get a perfect four Oh. And after that point I was like, yeah, okay, well I can't beat Marcus. So I got to find other ways to be cool. Um, and so I, I always enjoyed school. I always worked hard at school. I always enjoyed my classes, but at that point, my ability, my desire to get perfect grades it wasn't as strong. And so I got A's and B's most of my, my high school year. And I was pretty happy with that. Actually, I don't know if I ever got a B, but anyway, so what ended up happening after that point was I realized that I could kind of, I could go to class for most of class. I could kind of get a sense of what was going on. I usually did very well on the tests, but I could like leave and go to the bathroom, quote unquote, in the middle of class and then just be gone for hours and then come back. But by the end of class, I mean, they didn't last that long, but I would come back at the end of class and I could go and just be, everyone would be fine. Nobody minded. The teachers didn't mind. And it worked out well for me because when I left class, I would go to the science labs and I would conduct experiments. And, uh, that worked out well because at the time I was dating the head of the science department's daughter. 
And so he was very helpful to me. He was very instrumental, I think, in my development as a scientist. And he was very, you know, I would, I would propose to him these experiments and I'm going to go into a little one. I'm going to give you an example. So I was working on doing heat transfer for a project that I'm frankly still working on in my, the back of my head somewhere, but it was a, an energy system that was all about harvesting energy. And so a big part of energy harvesting is heat transfer. And so I was evaluating which liquids would be best for the purposes I had in mind based off of specific heat parameters that the, the project would require. And so I set up an experiment with him where we specifically monitored and measured specific temperatures of things and moved the liquids with the heat and see how they, you know, see how they performed. And this experiment needed, required precise timing and specific heat analysis and very careful attention. And he taught classes and I went to classes. So we worked together during that experiment to kind of like where I would come out of class after having to quote, go to the bathroom and I would go and monitor it. And then I would finish and he would come and monitor it for a little while. And so I had a a whole series of these experiments that I conducted over my time in high school. Uh, and, And that was one part of it. Another part of it was that there was, like I'd mentioned before, there was a lot of equipment that a lot of the local companies had donated specifically to the high school to help train, you know, high schoolers to be, you know, engineers or line workers or assembly people or whatever in the the local plants. And, and so I was able to go down and that's actually where I was exposed to my first industrial laser engraver. And I don't exactly know how I came across it, but I realized that we had one in the basement and then promptly went to work figuring out how to utilize it for my own good. And I had a couple of components that I was working on at the time uh, with, with development of things. And, and so I'm like, all right, perfect. I'll use the laser engraver. And I actually was educated at that point. Like I spent time with, uh, Mr. Utec who helped me get, you know, educated on how the laser worked and what the proper safety precautions were and how to affect the settings and the, the DPI and all those other things to get the most out of the laser engraver. And so that worked out pretty well for me. And that's how I kind of learned how to use a laser engraver. And it was a, I mean, for me at the beginning, I mean, I started making books I guess, when did I start making books? It was probably begin, before my freshman year of high school was when I first kind of got into the idea of making books. It wasn't until my senior year that I actually started. I always wanted to make books. And the reason I bring this up is because one of the things I used the laser engraver for was laser engraving wood panels for the front of a book that I ended up selling to someone along the lines. But that's why I thought of it then. Um, but I hadn't, I guess what's the right way to say? I hadn't developed at that time a real strong plan and affinity for bookmaking. I just wanted to make props from movies. I really liked making props for shows. And so I thought, well, you know, books are such a good one. And, you know, by that point, I had learned the importance of storytelling. So I really had decided that it would be important eventually for me to to create something that could help people tell good stories. That's what I I knew I wanted at that point, something that would help people tell good stories. My brother, my, my junior year of college or my junior year of high school had, had gone off to college. So I was going into my junior year and Marcus was going into his freshman year of college. And Marcus had been my best friend up until that point and still is to this day. And I would tell him everything. We would like talk and talk and talk. And so this was back in the era of flip phones. And so when he went off to college, like we didn't really have time to talk on the phone and I couldn't text him what was going on because it's, it was just basically impossible to text at any reasonable speed 
at that point on those devices. And they were also, they were track phones. So we had to pay for each text and they were expensive. So I decided that what I was going to do is I was going to write down things that happened to me. And I was going to tell him when we came, he came home for breaks. And eventually it was kind of the thing where it evolved into, okay, this is what happened, but I got to tell you the whole backstory. So I would start writing down what happened during the day and all of the different parts of it. And eventually it evolved into journals and I started to journal on a relatively regular basis. And I actually found that I really enjoyed it. And I'd had a whole bunch of journals up until this point that I had been given as gifts because people knew that I wanted to, but I just could never bring myself to write in any of those journals. They were too pretty and I didn't know how to do it. And so I didn't want to ruin the journal by doing it wrong. And that feeling actually was what led to me deciding that all of the products of the Murdy Creative Company would be refillable because I didn't want people to, to buy them and then not use them because they didn't want to wreck them. That was one of the biggest parts of what led to them being refillable. So I guess I'd, I'd finished up. So my academics, I was always doing honors classes and AP classes, and I loved doing that, and it developed a real love for science for me. I really enjoy the science and, and history particularly and how those two interrelate. I, I love the story of history. I think it's very important for people to understand their history and how it affects them because it does and so I really enjoyed all of that. And for a while, I was going to be a politician. And then I decided I didn't really want to do that because that just meant that you just spend all your life fighting everyone and nobody likes that. And, you know, I thought for a while I was going to become a, a, a performer and I was going to be an actor. But there's not a lot of money in that. And, you know, it's it's not I, I always wanted a family. I knew that was part of my long term plan. And so I didn't want to have to be an actor with a family because, A, the acting industry is a it is a difficult one to go into if you want to be a, have a family for a lot of reasons. Um, so I decided I didn't really want to be an actor. Plus, I, I have an okay voice, but in the world of acting, you have to have a really good voice to be able to really do it competitively. And so I knew that I liked science. I knew that I liked history. And I knew that I liked acting. And really where they all kind of culminated for me was business. I mean, that was, if you think about it, that is where all of those culminate. That's where your ability to... to tell a good story, to find and collect scientific data about your target markets, about your audience, where you can understand how legacy and, and the past affects the present. Those All of those things kind of culminate in business. And frankly, I think everything leads to business, but that's just me personally, and I have a little bit of a bias. So I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And by about my sophomore, junior year, I had started journaling pretty regularly. And then... It was until my senior year, it wasn't until my senior year, I should say, that I was able to fit in an actual art class. Up until that point, I had done band and I had done choir. I had done a lot of my AP English, AP science classes, AP history. I was really enjoying all of that. I really love psychology. Uh, but I hadn't really had any room in my schedule to do something like an art class. And so my senior year, I was able to take something called experimental art. And it was not what I thought it was. I thought we were going to like design cutting edge experiments and combine them with art and all sorts of other cool things. And it was definitely not that. It was old traditional forms of art that have kind of been lost or forgotten, which I will say was a really interesting and very cool project. And I really enjoyed the class. Uh, and there was a lot of a lot of people who really helped I think develop me in that regard and my artistic talent there because I've never I've always wanted to be a sketch artist. All my life, I wanted to be able to draw. And I know that it's a skill, just like every other skill, where you just have to practice and get good at it. 
and I just haven't taken the time to do it. Someday I will. Someday I'd like to. I'm continuing to get good at it now, but I never could draw. And I was always frustrated because like in middle school, if you can draw, you're the cool kid, right? That's like a real talent. And in middle school or in high school, that doesn't go away. Being able to draw is still a really cool talent. Actually, that carries on to college too and into real life. But um, so I always thought to myself that I could never really be a true artist in the sense of that because the only type of art there was was drawing. It wasn't until I started doing some of these old types of, of art that I really discovered that I could be an artist. And one of the things that we did was something called stab binding, Japanese stab binding. And at the time, I thought to myself, well, this is dumb. And ironically, Japanese stab binding is the technique that the Murdy number one uses. So, you know, I was stupid then. But I was able to take this course and we made this very, very simple spin post book, which is literally a stack of post-it notes with a post, a, a post binder through the corner. And the, the, the stack of post-it notes like spins open to reveal like the words, uh, but it wasn't anything like sophisticated. But it sparked in me the idea that I could actually go and make books like I could do that. And I really wanted to make movie props that were like movie quality. And so I went into the library and I got a couple of books I started watching some things on YouTube. I researched some things on Pinterest and I started to develop an understanding of the history of bookbinding. And like the more I got into it, the more I loved it, the more there was for me. And there's a ton, there's a ton of history in bookbinding. It is very, very deep. There is, and I didn't realize this, but as soon as I got into it, there's kind of a cult like behind it. Like there's a whole group of people that you don't know about that are bookbinders secretly on the side. And they're, often very willing to, to share a lot of their secrets. They're willing to, you know, be part of this community. And it's a very cool community to be part of. There was a judge in Janesville who was a master bookbinder in his free time. And man, he made some stuff that I am still impressed by. So it's a cool, it's a cool community to be part of. And I, I started researching a lot of this and I started selling some of my books on Etsy very simply. And they were very simple designs that I'm proud of to this day, but not near, I mean, like, let me put it this way. My mother has one of my books from Etsy and I don't want her to carry it because it's not, it's not nearly to what I do now. And I mean, it, it goes to show you that whenever you do anything, you're not going to do it well in the beginning. You just aren't. That's the reality of it, right? Nobody sits down at the piano for the first time and plays like Mozart, right? And not even Mozart did that. So Whenever you, so, and this applies to journaling because a lot of people feel like, oh, I just, I can never do it right. I can't get into journaling. Well, nobody starts off being good at journaling. It's a practice thing. You start off being really bad at it and then you get good at it, but it's better to do a good thing poorly than to not do it at all. And to be completely honest, journaling is something that's really important for mental health. And I strongly recommend you try it because you'll really enjoy it once you get good at it. So, um, I started doing book binding. My early designs were very poor. And it was at this time that I started realizing that there's some economics to all of this because I used this very fancy high-end parchment paper that I bought at Hobby Lobby in my books, in my designs. And Hobby Lobby has a coupon, or they had a coupon, I should say. I don't know if they still have it. But they had a coupon where you could get 40% off one item one day per customer. And so what I would do is I would take my younger brother and we would go to Hobby Lobby and we would buy one thing of this paper because it was pretty expensive for me at, at the time. And I would make him buy one and we would be two separate customers and we'd get our 40% off. And it was a trick, right? Because if you bought too much, 
then you had too much sitting on the shelf and all of that money was tied up, right? And when you don't, when you're a kid, you don't have money. It's like a big deal to put the money on the shelf. But by the same token, if all of a sudden we'd get a whole bunch of orders and I didn't have enough inventory, then I would have to go buy it at the full price or a, a, a more close to full price. So it became this game for me to start realizing, okay, if I buy, I need to have enough, but not too much, but enough, but not too much. And the sales keep changing. And how do you predict all of this? And so that was actually my first real exposure to business in a way where it was like, this is kind of how a little business works. And it was also during that time that I realized that I really didn't want to do stitching in my designs because I used to stitch by hand all of my old designs. And a couple of things come into play when you stitch designs by hand. A, your hands hurt. B, it's very time consuming. And C, if you mess up, it's really, really obvious and it's also hard to fix. So that it was like that was where I started to develop some of these these techniques and and design elements that I really realized I didn't want to, and they came in very handy later. I was about this time actually that I had a, a very important thing happen. It was a gift. Uh, it, and this is where I go back to you never know what your gifts are gonna spawn. So Give good gifts. And the gift was a gift from our next door neighbor, Dr. Michael Ranero. And it was it was Dr. Ranero, it was Mr. Dr. Ranero and Mrs. Dr. Ranero. Both of them were doctors. And uh, their kids were about our age. And so we grew up next door and you know we were good friends with them and they were very polite and kind people. And uh, Mr. Dr. Ranero always had very cool things. Like he he made his own wine and he had been to Italy a couple of times. Like he was he was a cool guy. And he had these collection of like these artifacts as people do. And he would show them to me and they were like the most amazing things. And he had, a, for a while it was like knives. He had collected these beautiful Damascus steel knives and they were like, oh man, I, to this day, I think they're very cool. So, but I, so he had, he had pulled me aside one day when I was out working in the yard and he said, I got to show you something. And I said, okay. And I, I walked in and, and in his house, he pulled out this, these two rolls of the most gorgeous heirloom leather I'd ever seen. At this point, I had never been exposed to leather like this. And he said, go ahead and feel it. You know, and he was talking to me about how he found him in, a, in an estate sale in Milwaukee and how cool they were and everything and what he was thinking about doing with them and everything. And I was just like, I was like losing my mind because this was just gorgeous. And I said that to him. I said, these are, these are incredible. These are amazing. And, and I, I, man, it would be great to work with these for my books. And he gave me a roll of that leather then and there. Now, he may not have realized this, but that roll of leather started a whole thing. It really, truly did. Because I took that leather home and I just studied it intensely. I cut off pieces of it and I sent samples of it to a couple of leather providers that I I had found on on Google. And I said, look, I want to know what this leather is. Like, what are the words to describe this leather in the industry so that I can buy more of it? And that's when I realized it's like, okay, it's five, five and a half to six ounce, smooth grain, oil tanned cowhide, with a semi-firm temper. Like that's what they came back to me. And there was a couple of variations on that or people, you know, and so it was then, I mean, I was able to take a couple of those little pieces and send them to to suppliers and say, look, I want to buy this leather. I want you to, do you have any of this leather in stock? And a lot of them had similar stuff. And so I, that's when I started to realize that I could like buy this incredible quality leather, which to this day, I don't think very many people ever interact with leather like this. Because a lot of the leather that you buy in like leather goods that you get from a leather goods shop is veg tan. And I don't think that's very good all in all. I mean, veg tan is supposed to be better, but I don't think it is. It doesn't, I don't think it really pulls out the natural color of the cow's skin as well as something like this oil tan. Also, the surface texture I think is a lot better. So 
the the other factors that came into play was I realized that like, okay, the, all of a sudden I realized there was a price for these kinds of things that these were expensive, expensive hides that like the, the materials were very expensive and I needed to real, I needed to like evaluate my product, right? I needed to say, okay, if I'm going to make a fancy product with expensive materials, I got to charge that. And that was when I started to actually discover that people are willing to pay for luxury goods if they're luxury quality. And like there, I know that's a weird connection, but when you're a, a boy from a Midwest town where most people are blue-collar workers who make good money but are blue-collar nevertheless. The idea that you would sell luxury goods is not the first thing you go to. And that's not your default place to be. And so for me, I, I had to get used to that. I had to get used to the idea that I'm going to sell something that is expensive and fancy. So it was my high school, and I'm, I'm finishing up high school. I'm doing these stab-binding techniques. A lot of this happened the summer after my high school career, and I absolutely loved working with this new leather. Like a lot of that summer was me working with leather and I got kind of good at it. I think I developed a better sense of it. I was exposed to some more of these people in this community who had become master craftsmen at it. And, you know, I, I think in the world of, of book binding and the world of craftsmanship and leather craftsmanship, particularly, it's the kind of thing where everyone develops their own unique style. Obviously there are, there are, you know, rules as old as time. There are ways that you, you know, use the material to its best that people have, have honed over the centuries. But by that same token, there's, there's some, there's some play, right? There's some ways to, to do cool things and unique things with the materials and you can get more out of them than other people can. And, and so it, it, it develops into an art form, into a craft. And I always consider myself first and foremost, a craftsman. That's my, when people ask me, what do I, what do I tell them? What do I call myself? It's a craftsman. So I really wanted to be the best at it, though. It was something that I really, truly felt called to be and called to do, and I just felt like I could be the best at this thing. And I think when you feel that call, particularly at that age, you need to like you need to live up to it. You need to do it. Because that call doesn't come that often, and it's only through that call that you can, I think, find really true fulfillment in your work. So for those out, out there that are thinking to yourself, I don't know, I don't know what I'm being called to do. I think you should, it, it requires tasting. You should got to try things. Go go do things that you wouldn't think that you'd like to do and maybe you'll discover something because if you would have told me then, that summer after my high school career, that this thing that I really liked doing, this hobby that I had skillfully and carefully turned into something that kind of paid for itself, but it didn't make much more money than that. If you would have told me that not more than five years later, it would become my full-time job, my wife's full-time job, the full-time job of several other people, and it would become a business that would be growing faster than anything I'd ever seen, I would have told you you were nuts. But that's how life goes sometimes. All right, well, I think this is a good start to a long-form podcast. I'll probably pick up where I left off here. I might go back. This isn't exactly linear. There's no rules. So I might go back a little bit, but to, you know, next time I pick up on this, uh, I'll probably pick up starting into college, going into college, and, and why I went to college where I went to, and why did that really change the path I was on, and how did that turn me into the person I am today, and how much of that was the college, and how much of that was me, and what are the classes that I took, and some of the stories of me going abroad, and how did that shaped, shape my business, and some of that stuff. So, you know, I'll get started in on that next time, and... I'm going to probably do one or two of these a week. I don't exactly know. Um, they take a lot more effort and a lot more kind of mental energy than I usually expend on these. So 
it's something that I'm, I'm going to try, but I'm going to see how the long form works moving forward. And if you like it and you want to hear more or there's parts of the story that you want me to go more into detail about, send me a message on Twitter, on Snapchat, Murdy Creative Co., or on Instagram or Facebook, MurdyCreative.co. And uh, I'd be happy to talk more about things or things. So thanks for tuning in today. Be sure to check back in tomorrow for our next topic. And don't forget to check that subscribe button below to be sure to get the latest podcast right away. If you have any questions or concerns about your leather binder, please feel free to contact us on the main page of our website at MurdyCreative.co. Or you can contact us via our Instagram and Facebook. You can text, email, call, direct message, all the usuals. And I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as possible. But I do appreciate your patience. If you think I deserve it, a good review can go a long way to help us grow a new community. And word of mouth is still the best form of advertising. So please tell your friends. That being said, if you have any more podcast topics you want to hear more about, send them my way. I'm always happy to engage with our growing community, and I want to give you guys what you want. If you're looking for multiple binders for gifts, giveaways, menus, really any reason, ask about our bulk discounts available. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day, and goodbye.